Yes, people, what's happening? And welcome to the Frankie Allen podcast. You are here with your host, Will Cranny, alongside the UK's most feared comedian, Frankie Allen. Frank, what's been happening? How are you today? Doing great at the moment. Uh, had something to eat earlier on and uh, feeling good. Looking forward to doing this podcast. Yeah, nice one. Usually we don't really have a topic. Today we've got a really specific topic. And the reason being is because we had Jack Ryan on the podcast last time around. I hope you all enjoyed that. Little special bonus episode. Going to start interviewing people, as we said, mixing it up a little bit, doing phones and stuff. And somebody actually said to him, that social club circuit is not a circuit anymore. The comedy clubs are the only circuit. And it got me thinking, and it, he's kind of right in, in a sense, whoever said that to him, I don't know who the guy was. Yeah. If you are a young comic now, there's a very clear route to becoming a, a celebrity comedian or being on the TV or whatever. And that route is going through comedy clubs, starting off, going on for free, going along with the script, and then working your way up in that arena. However, we come up with a hypothetical situation. And what it is, is there's a guy called Eddie. He's from Manchester. This is a hypothetical guy that we've made up. He just made this up, by the way, to illustrate a point. Yeah. So there's a guy called Eddie. He's 19 years of age. He wants to start his foray into the world of comedy. Okay. Um, in 2021, it's very clear the route that he would have to go down in order to become a, a huge star. He'd start on comedy clubs, he'd build up his social media following, he might get spotted, he might do a bit of TV work. In the end, he ends up on, uh, you know, O2 Apollo, um, whatever they call it, Live at the Apollo. He could be on Mock of the Week or something like that, and he could end up being, you know, a, a big star who sells out arenas. Very wealthy and make money, yeah? There you go. In 2021, that's the case. In the period where you started off, that is certainly not the case. So tell me about, was there a comedy club circuit when you kicked off as a comedian? No, there was no comedy club circuit in the late 70s, 80s, 90s. It was all social clubs. And the social clubs, you had to perform for at least one hour on stage, a long time, an hour, or two 40-minute sessions. Now, very, very difficult to do to get enough material together to do two 40-minute spots. Very hard. And and your audience were quite old. You know, they were the audience, they were the generation just after the war that came to the social clubs. Young people weren't really interested. Not that they weren't interested in comedy. They weren't interested in social clubs because you'd go along there on a Friday, Saturday or Sunday night. You'd play a house of bingo. There'd be a raffle to be an organist and drummer on stage. You'd have your MC singing. It was all very kind of old-fashioned, antiquated. And even the artists that appeared, even the comics, the comedians, had to use very old material. The bands would all be playing, although it was the 80s, the bands would all be playing 50s rock and roll. And the female vocalists, male vocalists that came on were all very kind of retro, retro. So it was very difficult to start off as a comic um, the social clubs weren't really um, a very good vehicle for anyone who started off as a comic. So the social clubs seemed like they were very old hat then. Uh, Frank was just explaining to me off camera earlier that the social clubs were filled with old people. So like, you know, a comedian might come on stage now in a comedy club and be performing to lads his age, get you know, couples, friends and stuff like that older. Let's say you were starting off as a comic way back when yeah. and you've got to go on in a social club. You step out on stage... You look up, give me the demographic, what does the room look like? What the room looks like is, I would say, 
for some reason, 60, 70% tall women, yeah. all old women. If anybody can remember Dame Edna, the character Dame Edna, uh, Barry Humphreys used to play a, a comic role, didn't he, as Dame Edna Average, who was this Australian woman with purple rinsed hair, glasses, you know, the pointy glasses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is what a lot of the women looked like. They were all in the 50s, 60s um, and 70s, a lot of them. And then you get all the men who were with them and they'd sit on a table, four or five of them, round this round table. They'd all have these fucking big pens because they'd done the bingo. The bingo was the kind of highlight of the night. Um, and they were very critical of any act who came on, especially the comics. The comics were on every single week, so they became very blasé about the material that we're hearing. A lot of comics use the same stuff very, very hard. It was a very strange, very difficult vehicle to get yourself across on. Okay, so at that time, you know, it was classed as mainstream comedy, what was being put out into yeah. the circuit then. Uh, traditional punchline gags were as... We spoke about off camera, as I said before this. Um, you know, can you explain to me what a traditional punchline gag is, just for well, anyone look, who's a young lad yeah, or girl watching? We all know what the alternative um, style of comedy is now, because that's the prevalent style of comedy in the UK at the moment. You know, this evolved from the comedy clubs. It's very observational. You know, people saying, "Have you noticed this? Have you noticed that?" And talking about uh, different situations that might prop up, pop up in your life. The Old-fashioned, it has to be called now, mainstream comedy is based on a gag. Now, a gag is telling a short story which is leading you in one direction. At the end of the story, you switch it to a totally unexpected outcome, and that's where you get the laugh, you know. Uh, here's a little one. I walked into a butcher's this morning, and I said to the butcher, fucking hell. Look at that pig's head in the wind that it's fucking horrible. And he said, that's not a pig's head. It's a mirror. Yeah. Now, normal course of events in normal life, you'd expect the butchers to say, yeah, yeah, fucking horrible pig's head. Uh, I'll have to get out the window. I think it's putting people off coming into the fucking butchers. Yeah. But he says, it's a mirror. So... That's totally unexpected. No one's unexpected. That's come from nowhere. That's like a body blow that knocks you to the ground. So every mainstream comedian was doing gags, gags that had an intro, that had a lead into the gag, then kind of segued into a punchline that you weren't expecting. So tell me about, at that point, the main comics that were on TV. Was the comedians on TV then? There was a show called Comedians on a TV during the 70s, I was only a kid myself, but during the 70s, mid-70s, comedians were booming, traditional mainstream comedians, yeah. what a, low, a lot of people call old-fashioned comics now. And uh, there was a show on Granada TV which was immensely popular called The Comedians, and it was clips of, uh, in a studio with a studio audience, clips of mainly northern comedians who were prominent, probably the best of the Northern comedians at the time. Um, they came on and done five minutes, ten minutes, uh, one after the other. It was very good. What type of comics? Mick Miller? Yeah, yeah, you had Stan Boardman, Mick Miller. You had a guy, Mickey Finn, good friend of mine, great comedian. Um, George Roper, Bernard Manning used to be on it. Ken Goodwin, Frank Carson. 
These, a lot of people will still remember these comics. They were great comics. And uh, sadly, a lot of them have passed away, obviously just due to their age. But uh, they were immensely popular, very popular, and they were commanding big money All right, let at me the ask, time. Let me ask you just, you know, I've got no clue about this whatsoever, but yeah. for anyone who was growing up in that period, you know, those guys, were they like the Jimmy Cars, Michael McIntyre's of that day? Yeah, they were kind of, with the working class people, they were like demigods, you know. If one of those comics had appeared on TV, on the Granada's TV comedians show, was appearing at a club near you, you'd done your very best to try and get a ticket, and they were like hen's teeth. You literally couldn't get a ticket at one stage to see Bernard Manning or Stan Boardman or George Roper, Ken Goodwin, any of these comics. It was very difficult to uh, to get a ticket to see them if they were appearing close to where you were. Oh, so they were crazy in demand, right? So that gives you a bit of context on that. Yeah. So I'm curious as what this guy's going to do to start off then. So we've got Eddie from Manchester. We've got Eddie, what, Eddie Flint, we'll call him. Eddie Flint, he's been transported. We've got Eddie Flint, he's been transported back into the 70s. What year is he in? 76. Okay. 76, he's 19, 20 years of age, and he's thinking to himself, I want to be a comic, how do I start? Yeah. Very difficult, Eddie, because working the social clubs, which were the only vehicle for a comedian in the 70s and 80s, what you had to do was have an hour of material at your disposal. Could you not, like, let's say, you know, uh, George Roper, as yeah. an example. I've got no idea who he is. Brilliant uh, comedian, you know. George, yeah. Okay, cool. Let's say I get in contact with George Roper and I say, George, I'm a young comedian. I want, I'm starting off. Yeah. Can I jump up and do five minutes before you? No. That just wouldn't occur. No, no, because that would be deemed... Because the social clubs were so regimented, don't forget, just after the war, everything was kind of still under the shadow of the war, if you know what I mean, for 20 and 30 years, quite similar to what it is now with, with, with the, uh, the lockdown and things. Everything was regimented. So even to be in a club, you had to be a member. You had to apply for membership. You had to be sponsored by someone in the club Why? who was a member. Because they looked on being a member of the club as being um, big time. It's like if you if, I, if you said to me, look, um, I've been invited to a party in a hotel in Liverpool. I'm going along there and it's a private audience. Um, Dr. Dre is on and Snoop Dogg. You wouldn't expect to just walk in, would you? No, I'd buy a ticket. You'd have to buy a ticket. Well, that's what it was like then. To buy a ticket or to, to, to get to the stage where you could walk in any time you wanted into a social club, you had to be sponsored by another member of the club to become a member. And becoming a member gave you certain rights in that club. Oh, wait there. So rather than buying a specific ticket, so it wouldn't be a case of like me and you going to see... 50 cents in the arena in town. No. We, we couldn't go, okay, I've spent 40 quid a ticket to go and watch 50 cents. You would just have basically an array of talent that was pooled into one place and yeah. you didn't have to buy tickets for that? Well, you didn't know what you were going to go and watch. But did you have to buy you know, tickets? Yes and no. On a normal Friday or a Saturday night, you just went to watch, you went to the social club. Primarily, the highlight of the evening, the star of the evening was the bingo. People lived for bingo. They weren't really interested 
Um, if the group was good, if the singer was good, if the comic was any why good. Why did they like bingo That so was much? a bonus. Well, why? I don't know. Why are people interested in rapping now? It was just a fashion at the time. The way, I don't know, the way people's brains evolved. Bingo was a big thing and the raffle was a huge thing in the social clubs. So the, the groups and the bands and the singers, they were kind of secondary to the bingo and the raffle. Okay, so Eddie Flint is he's got a script, right? And yeah. he's got a script from 2021. He's brought okay. it with him. And his script is very observational, a lot of crowd interaction, um, you know, not so much picking on people in the crowd, yeah. but kind of like, you know, asking them who they are, stuff like that, and, and, and taking the piss out of them, and also observational stuff. Yeah. He goes back to 1976. Okay. He's got that script with him. Does he have to change that script or can he go out on stage doing that script? He would never be allowed, he would never be permitted and he would never get one laugh with a modern day um, style of script, the one you're talking about for yeah. this, this hypothetical Eddie Flint. If he went into a social club in the 70s and 80s, people would just look at him. They really wouldn't understand what he was talking about. Would it be difficult from the fact that he's a young kid? Well, it would be twice as difficult. So I found it difficult uh, being a young kid because um, you're not accepted by a lot of older people. You weren't at the time anyway. You look like a baby to them. So you're standing there talking about, you can't, you've got your subjects are very limited. You can't stand in there talking about uh, my wife so fat and all as it used to be because you look so young. So you're very limited the material you could do. But to do modern day kind of uh, comedy club material, it just wouldn't work at all. <laughs> okay. It, it, it's like, to be honest with you, it's on a par. Things have changed so dramatically the last 40 years. Yeah. It would it would literally be like putting an alien on stage and speaking this, like, intergalactic language. They just look at you. They just wouldn't get it, you know. So, like, let's say I'm, I'm Eddie Flint, yeah? And how does the night work? So... At the start of the night, people are coming in. Yeah. Let, let's say it's a, it's a cabaret. Is it a cabaret club? I don't know how it works. Social club? Well, no, a social club is just a big room and uh, full of chairs, basically. Like a working men's club, isn't it? Working men's club. Uh, there's a big bar, huge bar. No waiter, waiter service. A bar um, against one wall. Stage area, huge stage in some of these places. A lot of the places you were like huge distance away from where the crowd were. Started off at seven thirty, um, where you'd have the organist come on and be playing, just playing an organ. <laughs> Why? Because it was what you call free and easy. What's that mean? <laughs> this makes me laugh because my granddad was ninety six when he passed away, wasn't he? A couple of yeah. years back, and he used to have this. He used dead old fashioned one. He had this big <laughs> fucking organ in his, and I always used to think that's so random. An organ, not even a piano. Look. The only way, you're a different generation than me, and we clash over a lot of things. A lot of it's generational. The only way you could describe it, there's been such a huge difference between yeah. the 80s and 2020 now, yeah. is you're going to a show, and you're sitting there, and you're waiting for um, kind of uh, Dr. Dre to come on stage. Okay. So while you're waiting... Um, for him to come on stage, um, Tinchy Strider comes on. Okay, I get do, what you mean. Does, yeah. does his spot? Yeah. 
where, you know, you're not really a big fan of his, but you know he's, he's good or he's quite good. He's not as huge as Dr. Dre. I like the Dre concert I went yeah, to. So you, you have Tory Lanez on first, he warms stuff up, yeah. Uh, so you, 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 you might be um, watching kind of like an actor who's not as big, not as famous as him, but you're quite happy to watch him and you're enjoying Like it. our shows. Like enjoying it, we have support acts. Yeah. But so when the organist came on a half seven and he's just playing this organ <laughs> and the drummer is like drumming away a little thing and he's playing like White a Shade of Pale was a very popular White a Shade of Pale and playing all these songs just on an organ all you can hear is this organ people buzzing off it like they would now Fuck off. yeah buzzing off it now, it, 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 uh, as if, you know, some famous rapper was on stage. And what do you mean buzzing off it? So, like, they'd be saying, oh, this is a this is boss, this. They felt chilled. They felt good because they were listening to the organist. Okay. And then they were building themselves up to the main act coming on. Yeah, but you said the bingo was the main thing, wasn't it? Well, the, the so bingo the was the, yeah, the, the bingo was the main attraction to get them into the club. But... Then after the bingo, or after the first house of bingo, there'd be two houses, two sessions during the night. Yeah. Then they'd get kind of excited, um, curious to see what the first act is going to be like. And what, so were they th three comedians on a bill, four comedians on a bill, yeah, five well, like and, it is now? And it's very difficult to describe uh, for myself and, and to speak for all the other comedians any that are still kind of alive now or that were going at the time. Um, it was literally, and I, I'm not trying to feel, make this feel bitter or whatever, a war against, because I loved working the clubs. It was literally um, thrown to the Lions, the Christian, you were the Christian on stage, thrown to the Lions. All right, so are you first on though? So oh, Eddie oh, Flint, yeah, yeah? yeah, he's been given his first gig, yeah? Okay. What does his night look like? Actually, let's even scale back from that. For him to get a gig in the first place, if he's gone to George George Roper and he said, can you give me five minutes? And he said, no, he's got nowhere else to turn to. How has he got that gig? How has he got that gig in the first place? He, he may get the gig. He would have had to audition for an entertainment agency who had the stranglehold on the clubs, who booked all the acts into all the social clubs, British legions, Catholic clubs, liberal clubs, labour clubs, private clubs, the bowling clubs, thousands of clubs in the 70s and 80s all over the UK. The country was saturated with them and everybody was out. During the 70s and 80s, I mean, especially during this lockdown, people will not be able to imagine what it was like. People were rotten drunk every night. Every night was like New Year's Eve. You know, there were um, thousands of people out, people being entertained all the time. And how you would start off being a comic, you would have to audition for an agency. Now, you could possibly get in through the back door with someone like George Roper, Mickey Finn, who were famous in the clubs because of the uh, the weight that they carried, their name carried. You could approach the club and say, "Look, um, George Rope was a friend of mine. He, and he asked me, could you put me on? I won't charge you, but I'm starting off. Can I go on and do like a bit of an act for you?" And they might. But would you yeah. have to be part of the main show? You couldn't just come on and just go do two minutes or five minutes. No, or something no, like that. you'd be booked into the club as and and, and how kind of difficult it was you starting off at 1920 you were following probably the week before they had a top comedian on the week before like Mick Miller Stan Boardman you know um, give me a, give me an idea of like Stan Boardman and Mick Miller of that generation yeah like 
Are they as big as like Jimmy Carr or Frankie Boyle or someone now? Ten times bigger. <laughs> and you're going to go on as a kid, like they, they they were like demigods, literally gods. You know, people stand, but I went to see stand. I went to see Mick Mill. I've got a ticket. Did you get your tickets? It's just a buzz around places. Yeah, you know, can you get me in? So they wouldn't I, do theaters at in. that point. Well, they were not, not really a vehicle. Theaters were kind of like were a vehicle for you know um, West Side Story, operatic shows. Um, ballet and things they weren't really hadn't really been taken over comedy wise so to give people context if you were a huge comedian in 1976 you would be performing in the same clubs as the young kids starting off yes you'd be performing you may be able to pick your own venue up and down the UK don't forget some of these social clubs could hold a thousand people Okay. Some of the big labour clubs up in the northeast and in the Midlands, some of them seven, eight hundred thousand people you could get in. So it's a big audience, as big as some of the theatres now, if not bigger. Yeah. So all these clubs have been demolished now. This is what people forget. But the where if you made it kind of thing, you became famous, you became big, you could go. And there were the variety clubs, of course. You know, there were huge clubs like the Batley Variety Club, which they were bringing people over from the states. You know, Shirley Bassey was on there, Tom Jones. Oh, so all like these huge people. Yeah, I, you had the Wookie Hollow in Liverpool, which held seven, eight hundred people, where you got, you know, singers from America, singers from Australia, Frank Ifield, you had um, you know, the searchers on who were big, huge stars in the sixties. All these people you had to compete with as, you know, a young comic. Okay, brilliant. So the huge stars of that time are coming over to perform at these venues. What is the safest way for Eddie Flint to start off? Eddie Flint, I would recommend, if it was me, if it was my recommendation, I would say, Eddie, do what I did. And what I did, I was very kind of, what's the word, fortunate, is when I was like discovered by a guy called um, uh, Iggy Navarro, Don Navarro, who's passed away now, who was a, was a great singer and a comic himself, and a bit of a film star. He was in a few movies in the 60s and 70s. He was in Letter to Brezhnev, movie made here in Liverpool. He was also uh, in, what was the other movie that he was in? Anyway, what he'd done, what Don Navarro done when he saw me, he said, look, I can see, you know, you're only 19, 20, you're starting off. It, this kind of worked in reverse for me, worked well. I'd be booked into clubs where there were three or four acts on during the night. Yeah. So half past seven, the organist started free and easy. Yeah. Play till eight o'clock, then a band came on. Now, when the band played for their first session, which was an hour, by the way, mm-hmm. they'd come off for 50 minutes. They'd come off. Obviously, the group had to strip down, had to take all their equipment off stage, pull all the wires off the floor, which were all taped down, take the microphones so down. So attention's take totally the speakers gone in the down. Room. Yeah, but that gave me an opportunity. That was 15 minutes to strip down and prepare for the next act. During those 15 minutes, they allowed me to go on stage and do my thing. A lot of the clubs at the time had what you call a walkway, like a catwalk, a runway, that they could pull right up to the crowd yeah, and I've seen them. You've seen them. So they've still got them now in some places. So what they do, they pull the curtain. So you're performing the band from the front cloth, strip basically. behind the curtain so nobody yeah. could see the band yeah. stripping down. But during that 10, 15 minutes that was available that night, free time, 
I'd entertain them. Would you get paid for that? Yes. Okay. How did you get that gig in the first place? Through connection, through Don Navarro, who was an agent himself, but terribly well connected in show business. How did he see you, though? Well, he saw me um, when I first went on stage, which was uh, a strip show in Liverpool, Sunday afternoon show, um, the MA Club, Merseyside Artists Club in Kensington and Shield Road. I just jumped up for the Joke of the Week contest and he saw me there and it went on from there. He said, look, I want to start you off. But obviously he understood I didn't have an hour of material. I didn't have two 45 minutes material. So I had to be broken in just like a horse, you know, kind of like um, introduced to the clubs in the best way possible, which was in between acts where I could do five minutes, 10 minutes, Perfect. So, Eddie Flint is basically looking to do the exact same thing as you did. And okay. Just before I was saying to you, if he approached George Roper and said, can I do five minutes here or can I do that? You said that wasn't available. So, basically, though, that is what you did. No, it wasn't available at the time. To be honest with you, what I'm saying is it wasn't available. You couldn't do it. Nobody would do it for you. I was just incredibly lucky. That's my story. Okay. But Don Navarro took a shine to me and really went out of his way to persuade clubs to put an up-and-coming, a new comedian, somebody, just a kid, really, on in between two acts because most of the clubs, they'd go, oh, no, don't, we, we don't want to be fucking about because it was all about the format of the evening. It was all about, it was very regimented. It was 8 o'clock till 8. And if you went five minutes over, there was trouble, you know. You yeah. say to the band, it's 9 o'clock, you should have been off a fuck. We're, we're, we're docking your money. We're deducting £20 off your fee. Because you, you've been on too long. Because they want to structure it, it the was show. Very structured, yeah. Very. So Don Navarro went out of his way for me. And uh, Don Navarro, some people may remember him. He was in a series called Boys from the Black Stuff. He would shake hands, he used to shake people's hands, crush the hands. He was a big guy, you know. But he played this part in uh, Boys from the Black Stuff. No, but he went out on a limb to get me performing in between other acts on stage so I could find me feet that way. Okay, sounds so let's say Eddie Flint randomly has the same look as you. Okay. He meets Don Navarro by fruit right. okay. and he says to him, Don, I'm gonna go out, you know, where is it? Where where's the show? The show's in, in a place in, in Birkenhead. Yeah. yeah. It's a huge labour club. There's four hundred people there. He's been set he's been told he can do ten minutes, okay? Yeah. In between the first band and the next performance, whatever that might be. Okay. Yeah? He's jumped up on stage and he's got his 2021 script. Right. He's walked on stage and he's gone, um, hey, what's happening, everyone? This morning I went downstairs. My girlfriend was in the kitchen. She fucking burnt the toast, blah, blah, blah. Like, very observational. Yeah. What would happen to him? He'd be booed off. <laughs> like, why? Because people's minds, that generation of people, their minds hadn't evolved you know, you're talking about evolution. It doesn't happen over thousands of years. It's happening every 10 years. Yeah. Someone from 10 years ago, totally different than someone from now. Every generation brings something new to civilization, but every generation is very different. You're very different than me. You know, in a lot of your beliefs, the way you look at things, even the way you behave, people were very different then. So they weren't used to, they'd never seen comic that would do an observational material so it just wouldn't have worked with, you know, just they're sitting there waiting for you to do a gag. And they're all dead old anyway. Very old. Okay. What style of comedy would you have to do? If Eddie's going to yeah. go, 
I, I need to survive. I want to become a huge comedian. Yeah. What does he have to come out and tell jokes? Or does he do audience participation or does he do a bit of both? Or what does he have to do? Very little audience participation. What he would have to do to be a traditional comic in the 70s and 80s, he'd have to come out with a suit on straight away. Everyone wore a, bo- a bow tie. You had to wear a dicky bow. Would he be allowed in the club without shirt. without that? Well, yeah, of course. He could go in like a, like, like Scruffy or as whatever. A, as an act? Yeah, through the back door. You're never seen by the audience. You can't be seen by the audience. Okay. Just what you do to me now, don't <laughs> let the audience see you. Yeah. That's a kind of retro thing that you have inherited, which I kind of grew out of, and I like mingling with the audience, but you don't like it. You should be in the 70s. <laughs> but the 70s Girl. vibe was... You pull up outside the club, half six, seven o'clock, an hour before the audience arrive, the back of the club, so there's no chance of anyone seeing you. You go on the stage, you test the mic, you do this and you do that, then you retreat into the dressing room with your suit in a bag, and you get ready in the dressing room. You do your gig on stage. When you finish, back in the dressing room, guy comes in and pays you in the dressing room, you kick the fucking crash door, whatever they call it, emergency exit, out into the car park, in your car and gone without anyone seeing you in the club itself. Okay, so Eddie has managed to put a script together yeah. for this show um, with the help of Don Navarro. Right. Okay. Okay. What type of material is in, is in his act? He would have to, even if he's a young kid, he would have to open up and continue with mainstream gags, a joke, an old-fashioned joke, just like your kids would tell each other in school, start telling jokes and have a bit of a routine to it. You know, you'd have to walk out and you'd have to go, bloody hell, yeah, uh, two fellas walked in a library, one had a green book, one had a book, and all this business. Then at the end, come to a punchline, then go into another gag, you know, all this, have you noticed, isn't it strange? People, if you're looking at you sideways, you had to do gags. Okay, so he's got a suit on. Yeah. He's, he's got 10 minutes material, has he? Yeah, 10 minutes. He's yeah. got 10 minutes. Yeah. He's gone on to do his spot, but he still looks like a young kid. It's yeah. his first ever time on stage. Will he get through it? Is he going to survive? What are the pointers for him? What does he need to do? What you used to get... With some of the crowds, I mean, just because a lot of them are older, they were all old crowds, all old people, a lot of them were kind of like very sympathetic that you were starting off as well. A lot of MCs, whoever was the compere on the evening, would introduce you, and they did it with Ray Kingsley, they did it with Danny Downing, my mate who's a comic over in Benidorm, um, done great over there, and they'd done it with me. They would always say, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget it was very difficult to get them to listen to you because when the act wasn't on, the audience were just talking and talking and talking as though there was a football match going on. Yeah. So the compere would come out and he'd go, ladies and gentlemen, shh, shh. Gonna bring our next act on. Now look, he's only a kid. That's what they used to say. Okay. And, ah. Yeah, but doesn't that kill you? Well, it does. Yeah. And the audience would go, ah. Oh. See, like, I've, d- I've done about, what, 20? I think I've done about, no, maybe 40 or something, comedy spots, like, way back when. And, like, if anyone ever did that to me, I'd just die on my ass. 
Yeah, because it destroys you. But the thing it is, just makes them makes you look like a fucking baby. But, if you walk yeah, yeah but at the same time, if that's the only audience during the seventies and eighties that's available, you have to play to that. You can't say, "Look, I want to be a comic." Eddie Flint can't say, "Yeah, I want to be a comic." I'm nineteen. Um, I'll have to wait till I'm forty. So okay. I'll, yeah. Okay. Know, fair enough. You, you're thrown to the lions, literally. So I had to walk out. As a young kid, looked very young. I always looked young, and you're looking, and the audience are looking at you. And to them, you're just a kid. So it's doubly hard for them to accept a joke off you. To it's doubly hard to make them laugh because they just don't take you seriously. All right, cool. Eddie's got big aspirations, right? He wants to be the, the biggest comedian in yeah. the UK. Okay. He's managed to get through his 10-minute spot in Birkenhead. Um, how, how did he get on? Do you think he would have got through it? Do you think he would have got laughs? Do you think he would have... He probably, like I used to get, a lot of the young, young comedians used to get at the time, he'd get a lot of kind of, like, sympathy laughs. <laughs> okay. From the women. The women, it has to be said, are much more kind of, like... Uh, empathetic, sympathetic than the men who didn't give a fuck, you know, if he died or he didn't die. Um, you'd be telling a gag uh, and they'd give you a little clap or something and some of them might, a little bit of forced laughter. Okay. So but, then, yeah. So then he's got, he's managed to get through the show basically. Yeah. Okay. Um, and him and Mr. Navarro have gone off yeah. and he said, well done. Like, you know, he wants to help him. How does he make his next step what what happens next for him? Well, what he's got to do next is work on his material. Go round the clubs when he's not working, watching other comics who are established comedians who are bringing the house down everywhere, like the comedians from the Comedians TV show on, on, on the television. Yep. Watching Stan Borman, watching Ken Goodwin, watching all these guys, watching how they work and... Pinching some of their material. That's just the way it was then. That's wasn't the it? way it was. So we used to go around, me and my mate Danny, and actually go around with a little tape recorder, taping different comics. We'd be in the audience like spies with this little tape, take it home, and then play. And I go, fucking, that's a good gag. I like that one. I'll use that one. Yeah. So then you'd play the tape, you'd write it down, then you'd rehearse it yourself in front of your mate or in front of the mirror. I mean, that sounds mad to me because obviously. Anyone who's listening to this under the age of fucking 40, it's got YouTube. You can just Google if yeah. you want to look at any jokes. I mean, if you wanted to come up with a new joke now on a particular topic. It sounds adult from another just planet. Google, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. I don't know, joke about elephant, and then it would you'd find loads of jokes. Back then, literally, you couldn't find any jokes, so that's why you're going around taping these people. And then you come up with a formula of jokes. So basically, all these jokes are kind of just shared between different comics, are they? A lot of comics use the same material. And if there was a new gag that was knocking about, it was gone like that, and everybody would be using it. And there was a lot of rivalry, a lot of hatred, really, bitterness between comics who were always accusing each other of stealing material. <laughs> okay. So, so, yeah. How long of an act has Eddie got to come up with? Eddie's got to come up with at least an hour, sadly. Okay. And is that to be booked as a headliner or is to be booked as a what? What's, no, what's he, he wouldn't be booked, booked as? as a star night. If you're a TV comedian, yeah, then you get twice as much money as the normal comic who's unknown. But you wouldn't be featuring on a star night where people who are members of the club 
buy special tickets for that night because they're watching a star. It's a star night. You just be the kind of um, common garden comic that's on every Saturday on the club so people don't even pay to get in to watch you. Okay, so would your advice to be to him, though, to continue to jump up for 10 minutes here and there uh, until he's got like a bit of an idea of, of what it means well, to be Well, it all helps stage experience, yeah. Get as much as he can. You know, like I did, go on as long as you can, doing your five minutes and ten minutes on stage, and then try to expand your act, whereas if you've got a ten-minute act, add another five minutes to it in your bedroom, write it all down, and then go on stage and try and lengthen your act to 15, 20 minutes. Then you'd have to lengthen it after, what, six months, see if you can do 40 minutes, and it might take you years. Eventually, you'll have to learn how to do an hour. Okay, so how do I go about... So I've been... Eddie's done 10 shows now. Okay. And he's done all little 15-minute shows, 10-minute shows, and he's got his hour of material together. Okay. How does he get a paid gig? How he gets a paid gig? I was getting paid, don't forget, you know, but it was only getting kind of like arranged by Don through the the clubs. I was only getting like £10, £15. What's that in relation to now? It's... I mean, it's strange now with the with, because of the uh, what's going on now. It, it's I don't know how to. It's probably like getting fifty quid. Fifty quid. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably like getting fifty quid, which is quite good at the time. I was only a young kid and I wasn't working. I was on the dole, so getting fifty quid, and I was doing two or three clubs in one night. Okay, you know, I've made eighty quid, seventy quid in a night, hopping from one club to another. In between acts going on, you know, 10 minutes, five minutes. And you're, all, you're minutes, gaining your experience. And you're gaining your experience. But once you've got, or you think you've got 40 minutes, what you'd have to do then is audition for one of the big agents. Okay. One of the big entertainment agents. And you'd go out on a Wednesday night to Anfield Agency, Ricky McCabe, K Entertainments, a hundred of entertainment agencies all over, you know, a lot in, hell of a lot in Manchester, Yorkshire, all over. Entertainment, you'd have to audition, for what, and they'd watch it and see, and they'd know straight away, they were very experienced, and they'd go, okay, yeah. They'd have your work in the following week. Okay. Because the clubs were booming. They had that much you know, work. And they just, and, and they were doing very well. The people that ran the clubs, the clubs themselves, were very wealthy. So they'd ring up and they'd go, look, Billy, yeah, you know, you've got your uh, Broadway Broadway nights are on this weekend. Uh, now, I've got you a female vocal. Look, I've come across a great comedian here. He's only a young kid. I want you to put him on. Just give him 70 quid. Give him 80 quid. That was the fee at the time. Okay. they go, yeah, okay, we'll give him a try. So, yeah. Okay, so he started getting his paid gigs. He's smashing it, right? Yeah. Just, you know, obviously this is glaringly obvious, yeah. but just to make this totally clear, it's 1976, Eddie's got no social media, he can't put stuff out on YouTube, he can't fucking run adverts, he can't do anything like that. Okay. How's he getting noticed? How's he getting noticed? And this is quite, I'm not saying it's sad, but this is just the way it was. And I've been, as you know, I don't have to tell you, I've been kind of stuck in this mindset for a number of years, something that's followed me from the like 70s and 80s. The way that you got a reputation, but by word of mouth. Okay. That's all. If you were going around the clubs and you're doing very well, you're bringing the house down everywhere you went, 
word would spread like wildfire. You'd be surprised. People would be ringing you, or the agents would be ringing you, I should say. They'd hear that you're doing very well, and they'd want a strong act. They looked at actors, they termed them as being weak, a no-good actor. If you were no good, you were a weak actor. If you were a good actor, and you, you were a strong, they'd say you are a strong comedian. Basically, strong in those terms means sure fire, doesn't it? They basically mean someone's going to come up on stage and there's no way they're going to die on their ass. basically. Yeah, it's like kind of like... Um, you could have a bad night even if you were a top comedian, but it's like buying a brand new car. You know there's very little chance that it's going to break down. Yeah. But if you've got a very old car, you know there's a good chance it's going to break down. So, yeah, you, you know, you're a sure... Yeah, what you say, you sure fire bet. You, you know, put your money on the fact that you do... If you were doing well and you're reliable, you've got a good reputation, and uh, you worked hard, that's another thing. You had to work hard on stage. You had to show. And yet, but what a lot of people forget about this business, even now, uh, during the 70s and 80s, the performance that you gave on stage was only part of the way that you were received. If you got into the club, you friendly with the organist and drummer, you were friendly, you didn't make any waves, you weren't awkward, you were friendly with the MC, you didn't insult the crowd too much, you were nice to the crowd, even if you had a bad night, you said to the audience, you know, it hasn't been my night tonight, but we've got a great band coming on, enjoy the rest of the evening, take care. I've been booked back into places where the agents rang me up and they go, look, they want you to do Bebbington British Legion. And I've gone, Hang on a minute. I remember saying to George Beadle, who worked for uh, Anfield Agency, he rang me once. He said, Frankie, they want you to do New Year's Eve, which was a huge night. You got double your money and everything. Fantastic night. Made double your money um, on, on Christmas, on, on Boxing Night and New Year's Eve. They want you to do Bebbington British Legion. And I said, George, um, are you sure you're not getting me mixed up with someone else? Last time I was on there, I died on my ass. Yeah. And he went, yeah, I don't know, but uh, do you like you? Do you just think you sound? The guy who was running it was a good lad, and he went, fucking hell, Frank, you had a bad time there. And I went, fucking hell, Billy, you feel terrible. And he went, oh, don't worry, and all that. People, you know, your journey to becoming famous through these clubs, even if you had a bad night, they were prepared to forget about it if they liked you as a person. And they believed it was in the you. Off stage was kind of a PR exercise as it is now in a lot of places as well. So you your know, advice to Eddie is to be sound to people all over the place. Be, you know, just be yourself. No airs and graces. Always have time for people. Don't suck up to them because they'll see right through that. But, you know, just say, look, I'm sorry it was a bad night. There's me hand, you know, take care. And they would book you back in because they liked you. So tell me, Eddie started getting loads of booked work um, he's, his, his reputation is spreading like wildfire. Yeah. That can't elevate him, surely, to becoming a superstar. What does? Well, the, you rode to stardom, as it were, during the 70s and 80s, and, and even the 90s, really. What you had to do, you gained your reputation on the clubs, and then you became one of the agents. If you were taken over by a big agent, Ricky McKay, Banfield Agency... Um, Cream Entertainment, Tom Ivers up in Manchester, Roy, um, 
Bob Crossland Agency, thousands of agencies all over the UK. If one of these agents took an interest in you and thought that you were very good, any work that came in, people inquiring for a comedian, they would give you that work. Yeah. They promoted you. They pushed you. They spoke about you to other agents. They'd have you working all over the UK, working in conjunction with another agent that ran clubs up in the northeast. Better money. Joe Vipond Pond up in the northeast. You know, you'd work through another agent. you yep. go down south and you could tour. You'd do very well. But once you got yourself a good name, you were established and you were kind of, you know, you looked okay. You weren't too old. The TV was the thing. All right, so Eddie's... 35 now yeah that's good he's yeah, been yeah. going for tw- for 15 years yeah, and he's 15, doing, 16 he's doing years well. he's doing well he's smashing it everywhere he goes but he's been picked up by a big agent okay okay so I don't think you had this did you he's been picked up by a huge agent who, who loves him okay. and is throwing him out all over the UK and he's talking him up oh my god have you seen Eddie Flynn he's unbelievable All okay. and because that's what the entertainment yeah. agents are like aren't they yeah. well they were back then how does he make the jump from becoming, you know, obviously we spoke earlier about if you're on a comedy club now, then you, you get longer and longer spots, then you might get a bit of TV work, but you might have a podcast and you might grow your following and you might have videos on YouTube and then all of a sudden, you know, you, you have a Netflix special. Yeah, yeah. What the fuck? What happened then? You, you, you're making your name. Very and, difficult. There was only one avenue and the avenue that you had to take was to get yourself by hook or by crook on the TV. Not radio, just TV. Well, the radio, you could... I mean, radio, no, no, it's got to be TV. Okay. Don't forget these shows. You're talking about uh, television shows now, even, you know, Michael McIntyre and all these people on the TV now. They're lucky to get three or four million, aren't they? People Views, yeah. You know. Like, I remember, uh, just for context, the World Cup England versus whoever it was, in the last first World Cup match, there was 20 million viewing live. So, And that's like the biggest event. No, but what people forget, people are watching Michael McIntyre and, and these shows, you know, comedy shows, uh, um, Would I Lie to You, and these panel shows and things. And all that. You know, they've got like, because of the internet, because of people's phones, people can watch what they want through YouTube and the whole thing has been fragmented. Don't forget, during the 70s and 80s, there were three channels. Two of them were BBC channels, BBC One, BBC Two. One was Granada. So if, if a show came on, like the comedian show, everyone in the country watched it. Everyone. So you had 20 million people watching it. So you were, basic, three million. You were basically so, a household name yeah, overnight. So if you got on one of these shows, you had to get on... New Faces, which is a talent show on the TV. Yeah. Or Opportunity Knocks. If you got it, that was like the World Cup final for you. Okay. If you got on that show and the panel in the studio liked you and voted you the best, then you'd return the following week, voted again. If you won like two or three nights, then you were a star. Was it like Britain's Got Talent or X Factor? Similar. Okay, so... Basically, it's like an X Factor yeah. for comedians or, or acts? For all kinds of acts. Okay. Different so, acts. So it's like X Factor, but like Britain's Got Talent, right? Yeah. But imagine Britain's Got Talent is your only choice out of three things that are on the telly. Yeah. So fucking everyone is watching it, right? Okay. You can't get in touch with anyone in any other way. Eddie Flint has got a chance. What is the show he's going on? 
The show is going to go on is probably New Faces. What was, like, was that massive at the time? Huge. Okay. Huge. And New Faces, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we can Google it in a little bit yeah. and find out who have come from New Faces, but maybe you'll know off the top of your head, I've, I've, as New Faces created many huge stars. Well, they have, you know, Bobby Ball, Cannon and Ball. Um, I think they did Opportunity Knocks, they won, or I think, you know, probably it was probably New Faces. Yeah, that's how they got off the ground. Jim Davidson, who became a big comedian in the 90s, he started out on New Faces. A lot of big acts, um, a lot of younger people won't remember them, but a lot of big acts during the 90s, 2000s, started off winning one of the talent shows. Right. So that's the way it was done. That's all you had to do was get... And your agent, once you were a big act and recognised by your agent as being a solid, kind of like big-time act that they thought they could sell, it was their duty to try, by hook or by crook, to get you on TV. Right, I'm looking here. Famous winners and contestants of New Faces. Okay. okay? Um... <coughs> Joe Pasquale, yeah. Lenny Henry, um, Jeffrey Hooper, I don't know who that is, but oh. Roy Walker, Michael, comic, yeah. Michael Barrymore. So basically, anyone who was anyone, I didn't know there was people like Lenny Henry on there. People who were like, you know, even still fa quite famous now, they got their break by becoming on this new fame. Yeah, I'll, I'll read some more out here. The Chuckle Brothers. Uh, Mick Miller, Les Dennis, Shawaddy Waddy, Chubby yeah. Brown, Chubby Brown, tenth of December, nineteen seventy-seven. Fucking hell! Um, Jim Davidson, Billy Pierce, um, Stevie Ricks. You know, basically, the, there's anyone who is anyone came from this show. Basically, Victoria Wood. Fucking hell! Yeah, or or Opportunity Knocks. That kind of like uh, a lot of stars came from Opportunity Knocks. Yeah, well. let's have a little look at the Opportunity Knocks one. Then while I we're think here. you'll find there's more people. Uh, really. Yeah, Opportunity Knox, famous contestants. Um, let's see, Les Dawson, Freddie Starr, um, bum, 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 seven of the best ever acts I'm looking at here. Who became famous from Opportunity Knox? We've got, okay, Freddie Starr, Pam Ayers, I don't know who that is, Les Dawson, obviously I know he's huge famous, Paul Daniels. Yeah, the magician, yeah. Um, Mary Hopkin and Los Caracas. Were they... Dead it's famous. Band, yeah. So basically, what you're saying is, if he's if Eddie Flint's going to do anything, he's got to get Flint on one of these. Eddie going to do anything. He's got to get off his arse, get an hour's worth of material together, go round the social clubs for at least four to five years, bringing the house down, get an entertainment agent to take interest in him, to promote him, to try and get him on the TV. A lot of the entertainment agents used to kind of like take out um, TV executives to lunch, to dinner, to try and win them over, to try and, you know, to try and kind of like... Schmooze them. Smooth, yeah, to try and get the TV executives to take a look anyway at one of their acts. Okay, so for anyone who doesn't know, Frank actually appeared on Opportunity Knocks. What year? Well, no, Huey Green brought out Op Knocks in the 60s, and I was obviously, even me, was too young for that. But Bob Monkhouse revived the show in the late 80s and it became Bob Says Opportunity Knocks and I was on that one, yeah. When you say opportun Bob Says Opportunity Knocks, how yeah. is that any different to the original one? Well, it was the same format, exactly the same. A bit more kind of glamorised, really, uh, when the BBC done it, but they got Bob Monkhouse um, 
we didn't really mention earlier on when we were talking about famous comedians in the UK, only because he was kind of in a class of his own. He was like Bob Monkhouse, probably the Elvis Presley of comedy in the UK. You know? Okay. He was so huge. If he was going to do a show, Bob Monkhouse. he was Monkhouse. always on the TV. Yeah, he'd be sold out all over the country. But he was a, a lovely guy. I met him, you know, and he was lovely, a nice guy. Nice fella, lovely man. And uh, great, brilliant comedian. Very, very sharp, very witty, very clever with his material, yeah. So the show to go on is Opportunity Knocks or New Faces, which is the show that, that Eddie wants to get on. Uh, either or, nothing between them. Just like saying you want to play for Man United or Liverpool, you know. Okay, sound. And he gets on that through his entertainment agent? Through his entertainment agencies. The entertainment agent's efforts really were to try to convince uh, TV executives that uh, they had a real star in the making. Okay, he goes on the show. The show format is what, you know, over a certain number of weeks, did you say? Well, no, it was one episode. You had to kind of like record it on the Thursday. You know, you recorded in the studio and then it was edited a little bit, your performance, and then it was broadcast on the Saturday night, um, generally. Broadcast as though it was live, really. They, they kind of like told the white light. When I did Up Knox, I recorded it on the Thursday, but it went out, it was transmitted on the Saturday night, but they... They kind of like led you to believe it was live, which wasn't a bad thing, really. But because uh, you could kind of iron out it if you had a few problems, you know, you could edit it a little bit. Yeah, and uh, normally four or five acts on. Yeah. Okay, and let's say he wins. He wins what, on a phone vote? You won in the studio. Now, when i done it, um, I didn't win in the studio. I think he came second in the studio with it. I think I won in the studio. Does that mean like panel, like Sam and Carl kind no, of? No, you won't believe this. It was very strange. This was something they inherited from when Huey Green had the show in the 60s. You had a thing which is laughable now called the clapometer. And it was this instrument that measured the amount and the, the, the kind of the noise level when you clapped for each. So the audience clapped for each individual. They say, look, Put your hands together. Let's hear you clap for Frankie Allen. So everyone, you know, is clapping like fuck if they like you. <laughs> yeah. And then that's measured on a scale. Oh, yeah, he got 80 decibels of clapping. Somebody else, I was on with a band called Four Wheel Drive uh, from Cheltenham. I was on with them and they came on, uh, four girls. And right, our next act, if you remember, ladies and gentlemen, was Four Wheel Drive. So they'd all be clapping. If they liked Four Wheel Drive, the audience liked Four right better than they like me. They'd clap a lot more, and then they'd probably go higher up on the scale on the clapometer. That's how it was done. Then they introduced a phone vote. So how it was measured, the phone numbers for each individual act were published in the Radio Times and in local newspapers. So during the week, you had to ring up this BBC number, but right at the end, press number four for Frankie Allen, press number two for Kerry Wilson, who actually won um, an impressionist. She was very good from Stoke. Press number five for four-wheel driver band. Who you preferred, who you voted for, you pressed at the end of the BBC number, number one, two, three, four, or five. Then the BBC counted the votes during the week 
for each individual act, then the following week they announced who'd won. And it was it only based on the phone vote, or did they cross-reference that with the clap on it? I think no, the clap on it was only kind of like a fun thing for the, the audience. Studio just to make it more yeah, of a vibe. Yeah. Okay, sounds. So you obviously came as a what a runner-up on that. Yeah, I didn't win it, and that was kind of like the end of your. I don't even think I was a runner-up. You know, that was kind of like. I was a bit kind of unfortunate in a way. When I auditioned for Opportunity Knox, I was the first comic to be asked to appear on the show um, from 250,000 people who'd applied to be on the show. Yeah. So from a quarter of a million acts, I was the first act that was asked to go on. Now, by it was great going on the first show, but just like Margaret Forward said who was the entertainment editor, you know, a journalist in the, um, for the News of the World. She said, I suspect the creme de la creme of all the acts auditioned appeared on the first show. And that was true. If I would have appeared, you know, on the fourth show or the fifth show, I would have won outright. Okay. But... I got placed on with Kerry Wilson. What they'd done, I suppose they panicked a little bit. They wanted the first show to be a to, beast, to be, yeah. to be a great show and to be fantastic and to go over well. So they put the best acts, quarter of a million people auditioned, they put the four best acts on, on I, the first show. So, you know, I'm not saying I was like, I was one of the, the best act. You know, Kerry Wilson was brilliant and she was very contemporary. I was telling gags and I'd done the gags very well, went down very well in the studio. But Kerry Wilson came on and she was doing a lot of impressions of people who were in Coronation Street. It was very current. And EastEnders. And at the time, Coronation Street and EastEnders were booming on the TV. So it was very in your face. It was very contemporary, very up to date. So she pissed that she won, yeah. Interesting. So... You didn't place and, you know, you've got a story out of that, you know, in terms of, of how that affected your public yeah. profile. Let's say Eddie Flint wins. He goes on and wins. Yeah. What happens to him? Eddie Flint, Eddie Flint wins Opportunity Knox. Then he goes to the all-winners final. Now, he's already made it, don't forget. You know, his kind of um, fee... Would, would have gone up from getting like £80, it was in the 80s, £100 a night as a comic. His fee would have gone up to about three or £400 a night. So what, like a couple of grand now? Equivalent would have getting a couple of grand for a show yeah, now. Yeah. It, it is kind of like persona. It is, uh, what's the word, had gone through the roof. His, his stock. Uh, his stock. And, uh, yeah. So, because he'd won opportunity in Oxy, he was big time, straight away. Okay. Now, they had an all-winners show where the season had gone on for eight weeks, so you had eight winners of the shows all came together on this last massive show. Whoever won that show was just became a superstar. Okay, and obviously some of those people that we've just referenced before, when I was reading them out from Wikipedia, must have won the winners' final. Let's say Eddie Flint goes on. He's up against all these other winners. He wins the winners' final. How big does he become? He becomes huge, and he becomes straight away as big as all those names that you reeled off before, all those household names. He would have become like Lenny Henry. Yeah. You know, he would have become like Jim Davidson, huge in the 90s. He would have become like Freddie Starr. Straight away, 
you know, I was only kind of like, I was two shows away in the 80s from becoming a big star. Okay, like... I'd done all the hard that work. That big, yeah? Yeah, I'd done all the hard work. I've worked in the clubs for like 15 years. Done all the hard work. Been picked, you know, the audition I'd done was fantastic. Picked as the first comic to appear from 250,000 other acts. And I just kind of fell at the last fence. Just didn't win. I mean... Even before, just the fact that I was going on Opportunity Knocks yeah, and I'd been picked for the first show, that kind of spread around like wildfire around the circuit. And I was getting like fated everywhere I went. I was kind of like big time. Yeah. And I was, I was on good money. My money went up. I was going on Op Knocks. That was great. And people were kind of like just getting ready to stay well in with me in case I won and then I would agree to do their club. So it was a little bit like that, you know, I was doing very well at the time. And the way the trajectory of it was, I was doing so well around the clubs, going on Op Knocks, if I won, boom, I'd made it. But sadly, and, and this is just a lesson in life really for people, so, you know, just showing you how um, if things don't work out, how you can you can nosedive yeah. immediately. I mean, two weeks after doing Opportunity Knocks and not winning, I was getting filled in. I was getting fucking battered in this club in Manchester, fighting for my life in a club, in a rough fucking club. Now, if I would have won Op Knocks... It would have just totally changed. I never would have been in that club. I had to go right back to the bread and butter clubs. People soon forgot... In a few weeks that you were even on that show. Um, so Eddie's won this, won it. He won the winner's final, yeah. He's obviously, you said he's a household name overnight. Yeah. How does he like, how is he in the public eye though then? Like, like yeah. watch, is he on TV all the time? What If he's on TV, what's he doing on well, TV? he may get his own TV show. He may guest on other TV shows for other comics or other artists. Scylla Black was on, she had her own show. Um, anyone probably who'd done very well on Up Knocks or New Faces, they might guest on air show. But it wasn't just, you'd won that show. So you went on to a different circuit then. Was he like on the comedians and stuff? Yeah, well, the comedians, yeah, he could potentially go on the comedians show when that came round again. But he'd, be, he'd probably be thrown onto the cruise ships. Okay. Going on cruises as a, as a big star, you know. And that helps sell the cruise to people, you know, new faces winner. Um, what's he called? Fred, Eddie, fuck, Flint. Eddie Flint. Eddie Flint is on. And I go, oh, yeah, let's go and see Eddie, you know. So it, 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 it was great. It really, if you got on the TV and you won one of those talent shows, you'd, you'd made it, you know, you could name your fee. So, like, you know, I'm going to have a little look and, you know, later today. I'm dead interested about the backstory of some of these guys. I didn't know Chubby Brown had won. Because that's like totally random. You'd, you'd expect. I didn't expect someone like Chubby Brown to have been. Yeah, but I don't think on Roy Chubby Brown. At that point. I don't think. I think he'd done the show, and it obviously had to be clean in the seventies. And it's difficult. It was like me when I went on. You know, you're doing clean material. I could do it, but I would have been more comfortable if it was Channel Four now, where you could go on and just do what you want. You know, you could swear. Yeah. So it, it was very difficult, but I mean. Very complicated, a lot of favouritism in the 70s and 80s, where if an agent liked you, you know, they would promote you. They'd somehow, by hook or by crook, they'd get you on the TV and give you at least a chance of making it. If, for whatever reason, they didn't like you, 
they thought you had a bad attitude. Um, the agents had an agents association, and they were kind of like the mafia. Yeah. If you rubbed them up the wrong way, say for instance, and this happened to a lot of comics, happened to me for a while, happened to a mate of mine, Danny Downing. If you auditioned for an agency, and uh, they came to you and they said, look, we don't think you're good enough to work the clubs. You're not strong enough. You'd have to come back in a couple of years when you've done a bit more work on your act. If you said, no, I don't agree with you, I think I'm very good, which is what I thought when I got blown out by a couple of agents, I'm going to work. So what I did, and a mate of mine, Georgie Moss, we were in a duo together. George passed away, great comic. Um, George got the same treatment when he auditioned he wasn't um, a favourite. They didn't like his style and thought he was too blue. So they said, we can't give you any work. But George was a great comic. I was a great comic. So we teamed up and we thought, no, look, we're not going to do this. And not a Saturday and a Friday night, we go round the clubs with thousands of clubs, go round the clubs and say, look, we've got, we've got an act together. Will you put us on? Put us on. And, uh, you know, you don't have to pay us. And because we weren't under that pressure of getting paid, we'd go into places and bring the fucking house down. You wouldn't get paid? You wouldn't get paid. Why? Because we didn't ask them to give us money. Did they do a donation? No, well, let me explain. The reasoning behind it was once the audience had seen you, once the secretary, the senior, they'd say, yeah, we'll have you back. You come back and do another show for us in four weeks' time and we'll pay you. Right, okay. But what started to happen then with me and George, when we were Lee and Alan, we were called, we were doing it everywhere. We wouldn't take no for an answer off the agents saying we were no good. We believed in ourselves. We went round the clubs, and in the end, the agents changed their minds. The phone up and said, look, you know, one agent rang me, Tommy from uh, Anfield Agency, he said, look, I know you're going round clubs and you're getting up and you're doing your acting. You've been doing very well. I know you're not getting paid. Look, uh, don't do that because it's you're embarrassing yourself in a way. Look, we'll, we'll put you out. We'll pay you. We'll put you out on the clubs and uh, we'll give you a go. So it worked, you know. Got you. So, Eddie, if you are a, a guy who's going to go try and travel and back to 1976 or if anyone listens to this and manages to get a time machine, now you know how to go and become a comedian in 1976. <laughs> well, it's a bit more kind of like, as I say, what I'd like to say, although a lot of the agents were, were decent people and a lot of them were, were nice people, there's still some agents knocking about. If for whatever reason, say, for instance, the cardinal sin, if you didn't turn up, on a club on a Saturday night. Yeah. That was literally like committing murder. You know. You'd be ostracised by everyone. You'd be ostracised. And the agents who had a meeting once a month of the Agents Association of the North of England, they'd say, anybody got any minutes to bring up? And they go, yeah, Frankie Allen didn't turn up a heightened British Legion. Everyone's waiting for him to come in. There was no act that night. It was fucking awful. Then they would black you. No one to give you any work. Okay. So again, you have to kind of work in the shadows, under the radar, get your own work and things. I was black for years for being blue. Danny Downing was had an attitude as well as me. You know, he was blacked for years. A lot of comics were blacked, so that you were kind of like, um, what's the term? Ostracized, as you say. Yeah. 
they wouldn't work it. And they'd make sure at these meetings that nobody else would give you any work. You know, you couldn't ring up an agent in Newcastle and say, can you give me some work? Because they would have heard, or you'd be on a list sent round to the agents, don't work, Frankie Allen. Interesting. So for that guy who spoke to Jack, that's where the whole conversation comes from. There's your answer, mate. The comedy circuit did not exist in 1976. And just for context, to give people an, an idea of how in vogue your style of comedy was then, yeah. right? Imagine there's some there's a brand new comedian that comes out in the UK and he's as big as Kevin Hart, right? Okay. But he's fucking huge. He's from, you know, he's from Manchester again, just to give it context. Yeah. And he's as big as Kevin Hart and he can do arenas. But he's got an observational style. Yeah? Right. If he was transported back to 1976 and was on the final of New Faces and walked on stage and did his act, what would happen? Again, well, it would just be looking at him like as though he was from outer space. It's like a different language. It's totally, it's kind of like, you know, putting a comedian on, Opportunity knocks on new faces in the seventies, and a fella comes on speaking Russian. <laughs> just they just look at you; they yeah. wouldn't know what you're on about. <laughs> okay, they wouldn't compute in their minds. Got you. Just the way times have changed. Times have changed, and uh, thank God, you know my act and uh, James Kildington, our support act, um, is kind of reminiscent of old mainstream comedy, but. It, very different. It's been updated, obviously. Well, I do a different kind of... I don't think anybody could imitate my act. And Jimmy... Yeah, but at the James same... James has got his own style. And Jack Ryan's got his own style, which is reminiscent of the 70s. And people think because, you know, something's reminiscent of something a few years ago, that it's not as good as what's going on now. But I don't agree with that. It's you know, different. I, 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 it's different. And, and I actually believe that um, comedy reached its pinnacle really in the 70s well there's a there's a huge huge market for the comedy that you do and i was only looking yesterday you know on youtube when it comes up recommended videos yeah. a video of mick miller four months ago half a million views okay massive yeah but like people forget there's a huge market for that comedy and the key is it's so nostalgic because i i can't believe that you know for me to compute the fact that that was the in vogue comedy that all the famous people did is mad, but that's what that's exactly how it that's was. That's how it? it was. I mean, during the 70s and 80s, the act that I do now, um, may not have been able to do certainly a little bit later when Roy Chubby Brown came on the scene, he broke the mold really. He thought, fuck it, you know, I'm gonna swear on stage, I'll do and he got a huge following. And he became massive because of it. I probably could have followed in his footsteps in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, I had to learn to uh, be clean. And I like I love being blue. I had to go around the club for years being a, a, a clean comic. But there were places, you know, there were certain places where they, they liked you being blue. So you could just be yourself. And that's how I, I kind of cut my teeth on the clubs. You know, get all there's no substitute for experience, you know. So it's been a great journey, you know. It's... it's fantastic the advice as i say you know strange things i always remember a comedian called johnny mack and he's dead now now he won opportunity knocks in uh, 1970 75 a hell of a long time ago he won an opportunity in 75 and at the time i was really struggling going around the clubs 
and the club owner, the compere, the MC, they always demanded that you did two 40-minute sessions. And uh, what I was trying to do was, the, I had about half an hour material, 40 minutes material, I was trying to split it, do 10, 15 minutes good material, to just waffle on in the first half, then use some of my material in the second half, waffle on a little bit. When you say waffle on, you mean like, oh, just talk rubbish ladies shit. and gentlemen, what a great night we've got ahead, just Any stuff Everton like that. fans in and all this kind of, try to pad it out mm. by using material Would in you the still- first half and the second half. But when I told Johnny Mack, a very experienced comedian, because uh, what would happen is when you didn't do very well in the first half because you weren't using a lot of your material, you were trying to pad it out with rubbish so that you could do the second spot. What they do is they wouldn't fucking pay you. They'd just say to you straight away, come in the dressing room, look, no good, wasn't very good. Um, no, you're not going to come back on. Here's 20 quid for your petrol. Fuck off. That's yeah. what they used to do. So Johnny Mac, when I told Johnny Mac, he gave me some priceless advice. He said, Frankie, this one's dead easy. All you got to do, go on stage at nine o'clock, do your act, all your material, all your best material, everything you can think of, stay on as long as you can, do your 45 minutes, then they'll pay you, ask them at half time, Say, can you pay me, please? They'll pay you the money because they're expecting you to do the same in the second half. And I said, Johnny, but I can't go on. In the second half, I've got no material left to do anything at all. And he said, that's okay. Just stand there. (laughs) Fair play. They've already paid you. Just stand there in the second half. So I used to go to places, do all my material the first half, have a good night, have the organist on, bingo, the raffle, go back on at 10 o'clock and I just have to stand there and just waffle on about rubbish nonsense. But it was all great experience for me, fantastic experience. I mean, the Frankie Allen shows that we do now, we have our support comedian on, but I go on and I'm on three times. Yeah, two spots and an encore. Doing two like half hour spots, another, another, you know, I'm doing like totally for the whole night I'm doing about an hour an hour and 20 minutes material. Not many comics can do that. But thank God, you know, that I worked in the 80s and 90s doing the social clubs because the experience I got, the ability to do the amount of material that I do and the ability to handle any kind of audience um, is all thanks to working the social clubs. So I wouldn't really, although they were kind of like, you know, bad in some ways. I'm not really having a go at them. They kind of, uh, they gave me, you know, they made me become who I am, really. Fair play, right? We're going to wrap this up now. Massive thank you to everyone who's listened today. Um, And as we said, we're going to bring a lot more guests to you, stuff like that. You know, if you've got any ideas for stuff that you want us to come up with and or cover in the podcast, please do put it in the comments. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please do give us a five-star review. I'm going to read out some of the reviews now. Um, we've had a review from Azafella, who says, very easy to listen to podcast. Do you agree with that, Frank? Yeah, like a, <laughs> excuse me, like a free and easy thing. With free and easy, goes back to the old social clubs on a Sunday night. If they didn't have an act on, then they would advertise Sunday night free and easy. 
What was that? That just meant the bingo was on and the, and the organist to be on all night. Yeah, <laughs> okay. We've got Tom DeCarp says, great podcast, very insightful, really funny go-to. Thank you. And uh, Mick J has said, very insightful and honest. I only learned about Frankie from the Father's Day viral, but the story told on how he has got to where he has was inspirational, thoroughly recommended. Five-star podcast from all those guys. And um, if you are on Apple Podcasts, do give us a five-star review. The podcasts are flying at the moment. We're trying to put two out a week. Massive thank you to everyone who's watched and listened. You know, it does really mean a lot. And you, you doesn't, doesn't it? Would you agree with that? What means a lot? What the people are watching and listening and we've actually got a fucking audience. You well, know? it does, especially, as you say, during these quarantine times. It's fantastic that people are listening and taking an interest. And what gives me a bit of a buzz and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, warms me is the fact that there are people out there that will take, listen to my journey through the clubs and apply it to their own lives. It doesn't have to be as a comic or a singer, as a cabaret act, what's happened to me, but life in general, you know, never give up, just carry on and carry on. I worked on the clubs for 40 years, filled in, battered some of the roughest places in the country because it was blue, the agents wouldn't give me any work in the big clubs, I had to work in like little crappy pubs no one else would go to, but it's all worked well for me in the end, and in the end, just doing a little somebody videoing me, in a bar, in a, in a little pub in Liverpool on Father's Day that I didn't even know was being filmed has propelled me to who I am. So never give up on your dreams. Strength to strength, that's what we're going to. And, and a uh, big thank you to Will Cranny, my handsome son. Um, I used to look <laughs> like him. You know, this is funny. You I know, used to look like him you know, you say- age without the beard. And um, look at him, look how young he looks now. <laughs> Now, he's only, th- he's only 30, 31. Now, imagine him, kind of like as he was a few years ago, going around the clubs. He, he looked on uh, uh, as a child by, uh, by by audiences, by older audiences. Uh, you know, you're saying, you're saying my handsome son there, fucking some fella commented on the vlog last night saying, Will, your looks are fading rapidly. You need to get on the R Botox. You're kidding. <laughs> That's what he said. I love the trolls, me. Yeah. Oh, they're bad trolls, you know, some of the things they've said about me. You know, have you heard about what the latest fella said about you yesterday? No. <laughs> fuck off. What did he say? He just said, uh, like, fuck, fuck off, you gobshite or something, or I'll knock your fucking false teeth right out. Yeah. So I just put a load of laughing faces, and they, he wrote back, fuck off, you cock. Like, why? Like, I don't understand why they're asked. Kilvo waded in on it and just put, like, listen, charity boxing match. If you two don't uh, get it sorted, I'll have a boxing match at you and I'll punch your head in us. <laughs> like, then I'll smash your leg head all just over. A They're just weirdos, aren't they? You can't understand it. You know, a lot of these trolls, you know, that have a go at you, probably if you saw who it was, you go, fucking hell. Look like a, like a pervert sitting in a bedsit. Just dickheads. <laughs> Nice one. So look, you know, as we said, it is really, really well, look, uh, appreciated I mean, I that you've tuned in. I enjoy doing these podcasts, but I've really enjoyed this one today. And it's weird. It's just, you know, when I'm thinking about all the people I met on my journey through the clubs and through the clubs, you know, we'll have to do another one. This is a great subject because I don't think a lot of people are aware that after the social clubs during the 80s and 90s, the fun pubs emerged, which were fantastic venues for comics. And uh, out of the fun pubs evolved the um, sportsman's evenings in the 90s that always used the comic. 
and uh, private show presentation nights. So, I mean, you, we could talk all day about uh, the vehicles that comedians have used to uh, perform over the years. Fantastic. Nice one. But yeah, as I said, can't say it enough. Massive thank you to everyone for tuning in. Really appreciate it. Give us, give us a share to your mates, you know, get this podcast about. We love doing them and we want to bring more and more podcasts to you. So the only way to do that is to reach more listeners fucking get it spread out we love it and let us know i know some people have been showing us some love on twitter show us some love frank show some love <laughs> uh, you know on twitter saying you know i was jogging through the scottish highlands and listening to this podcast tell us where you're listening to it send us a picture you know show us where you're tuning in do you listen to it on on your headphones when you go and running do you listen to it when you're in the gym do you listen to it while you're working in the bath do you watch it on youtube do you listen to it on spotify how do you consume this medium because it really helps us to understand how you guys consume this content and helps us place it better and you know bring you the type of content that you want is the video important is the audio more important to you but you know at the end of the day it's just as important to us for our fucking mental sanity to do this isn't it well we've got to do it very therapeutic for me you know i really feel when i'm doing these it's as though I don't know, it's like, it's like I've done a show, you know, because I'm interacting with Will and I know people are listening. So it's brilliant, it's great. Nice one. If you are on YouTube, we're just about to hit 11,000 subscribers. Get yourself subscribed. Vlogs come out every Tuesday, podcasts every Thursday and Sunday. We love it. And uh, hopefully you guys love it too. So make sure you do comment. And Frank, the little piano music that's playing now. Yeah. Is this what the organs used to be like back Organist in the day? used to play, you know, half seven. Another weird thing, just before we go, people won't believe this one. Good. Um, people, you know, I sat in a fella's chair at Sheffield. was in this club called um, Dial House. Firth Park used to do two shows in one night over in Sheffield. One was one club was called, uh, huge clubs, one was called Dial House. The other was called Firth Park. So I went to this club one night and uh, nobody was in there. It was half seven. Every seat in the place was empty. So I just sat down at this table, just sitting there. And this guy walked up to me, about seven seat with his missus, and he's just standing in front of me. Yeah. And he just started, like, snarling, like, growling, pulling faces, you know. So I said, like as though he was going to kick off. So I said, what's up, mate? And he went, you're in my seat. <laughs> I said, what? I said, there's about 400 fucking seats here. Just sitting down on a chair. I'm the actor, be on in a minute. You're in my chair. We've been sat there for 35 years. They claimed the seats. Fair play. Fair play. Weird. So I'm, in, I'm into all that. I like a bit of that. You like it? You what? like your routine as well. You're like fucking Jack Nicholson off as good as it gets, going to fucking mockers every morning. I know. He travels bit, about 40 yeah. minutes to get a breakfast. I don't like change. You know? Nice one. Look, massive thank you to everyone for tuning in. Hope you appreciated us coming on today and sharing our story of Eddie Flint when he went back in time to 1976 and how he performed as a comic when he won Opportunity. And he didn't win Opportunity Knox. Did he win new faces in the end? Eddie Flint? Yeah. He won Opportunity Knox. Um, a tragic story with Eddie. <laughs> Eddie Flint, right, went to see um, one of these Christian uh, things and he found God and he, he gave up. He said, I'm not going to swear anymore. 
Um, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm going to be, a, you know, a Bible pusher. So he gave up comedy. Fair play. Listen, massive thank you to everyone for tuning in. We'll see you on Sunday. Frankie, have you enjoyed today's podcast? I've thoroughly enjoyed today. Got a few problems today. The fucking washing machines broke down. Got to try and fix it. Um, I don't even know if the shops are open. You can buy a new one. So that's my main problem. Everybody out there probably got a problem. You know, massive. We've all got problems. And uh, yeah, just hopefully it'll all be solved. So thanks for listening. Take care. Nice one. See you all later in a bit.